Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia. I'm the host of the End of the Word podcast and one of the facilitators of the Canadian Pastors Forum. This is the podcast version of that forum where we discuss issues of interest to the wider Canadian church. So glad to have you with us today. Today, we're going to be talking about the current state of pastoral ministry in Canada. The median age of a pastor is up significantly. 30 years ago, it was roughly 44 Today, the median age of a pastor is 58 and climbing. There's a huge tranche of pastors about to retire, and there are nowhere near enough pastors coming up behind them to replace them. In addition to normal retirement, we've also been hearing, I'm sure all of us, about the higher rates of anxiety, depression, burnout amongst pastors. So what's behind all of that? And why aren't there more young people eager to step forward into vocational ministry? Here to solve this massive problem in 50 minutes or less is my fabulous panel consisting of Pastor Rob Goddard from Cloverdale Baptist Church in British Columbia, Pastor Michael Cron, the lead pastor of the EMMC Church in Elmer, Ontario, Pastor Paul Graham, pastoring in Halliburton, and Wyatt Graham, the executive director of TGC Canada, and myself, Paul Carter, pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church and executive council member at TGC Canada. So thanks everyone for being here with us as we tackle this problem together. It's a privilege. Right. It's great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. And uh, let's start with the burnout and resignation issue. Michael, I know you've been doing some work on this. In fact, uh, the Lord seems to be pulling you into this in a deeper way. You can tell us a little bit about that. But how big is this problem and what do you think might be behind it? What's causing it? Yeah, uh, I recently gave my eventual resignation from my church um, to begin a new ministry that will uh, act as a support and encouragement and hopefully offer some training to pastors who are struggling. And so for the last few months, especially, I've been having conversations with many pastors. And um, yes, I can go through a few points here of, of uh, what I've been finding, common uh, areas of struggle amongst pastors. One is that uh, there seems to be a less hospitable environment, both inside and outside the church. Uh, maybe not in terms of a lot of animosity, but some apathy, both inside and outside of the church. I uh, find that pastors lack adequate rest. That has to do both with uh, pastors not receiving sabbaticals and also not resting well in between those sabbaticals that they're not taking. I find that set sort of accumulates. And uh, we're, I think we're seeing a bit of a tipping point right now. There's a lot of uh, dysfunctional leadership structures within the church, just a, not a good general understanding of biblical structures inside of a church. And when a pastor does come to a conviction about some of those matters, it's pretty dicey to try to address them when there's already an established leadership structure that's been in place for, for many years. Uh, generally amongst pastors, I find there's a lack of spiritual disciplines. Well, we are supposed to be the exemplars of those, but it seems sometimes that we feel like we get an exemption because we, quote unquote, do some of these things professionally. Um, but there seems to be a lack of that. See a lot of training, leadership training within churches, but it seems like the majority of it is rooted in principles for business. And of course, some of that is of value to us as pastors, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, training available for spiritual leadership that's particular to to churches, particularly how to be a, an elder pastor within the church. And then a final one, uh, kind of recently come onto my radar, is that with the increase in um, retirements, I would say with that age group of pastors who are getting to that age, there seem to be quite a few younger men that are being rushed into responsibility. And of course, we know that's a, that's a dangerous situation if they don't have the proper guidance and uh, mentoring. So there's probably a few more, but those are those are six that I've been seeing pretty commonly. Yeah, I mean, the, the demographic part, I mean, the, there's a sense in which this problem is just math, right? So um, I think there are, there are basically three Gen X pastors for every five retiring boomers, and the youngest boomers are, are now the ones retiring. So, I mean, the, the math indicates that if five retire and there's only three coming up behind in the next generation, obviously you've got two empty seats in your you know musical chairs, right? And so- two things are happening. Some of those chairs are not being filled. And then, and then in some cases, as you say, they're being filled by very young guys, guys who are basically now going to skip the middle part of the traditional pastoral pathway, which is, you know, 15 years as an associate. 
And that means they're going to take on responsibilities before they're mentally, spiritually, psychologically prepared to do so. So I'm, I'm sure that's that becomes then part of the burnout uh, cycle as well. So that's now, Rob, are you seeing I'm, I'm assuming this is a nationwide phenomenon, not just a central Canada thing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, we would have very similar issues out here in British Columbia. I think a lack of uh, trained guys ready to go and even a fear of of transitioning and some of the issues that come with that. So we certainly have a shortage here as well. And, and we're in process of looking for guys and and it's a difficult process given the current situation. Yeah, I talked to um, when we were in the midst of a hiring process here, I, I talked to some of the guys for the fellowship, the, uh, the denomination that we're a part of the Fellowship Baptist. And they said for the first time, they have more openings in first time in the, in the memory of anybody working there, they have more openings than they do applicants. Um, and, uh, that's just an, a new thing. And, uh, they were, they were starting to get pretty concerned about it. So they're this, this iceberg, we've been talking about the tip of the iceberg, the, the tip is well and truly out. And we're starting to see more and, and more of the iceberg. Uh, curious uh, to think a little bit about, about some of the factors behind that, I, I like mental health. Um, the the mental health trends were already pretty bad before COVID, and then COVID made them worse. Uh, I'm I'm assuming we would we would say that that the same is true when it comes to pastoral stress, anxiety, burnout. That it was already getting bad, and then COVID made it worse. Is would that jive with the experience that that you guys are having? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I kind of see in COVID exacerbated it was. Um, a trend in the last 10 years or so of the church adopting some of the combative ideological mm. philosophies of the secular world. And so I, my suspicion is, is that COVID really saw that peak where you couldn't make a right decision because people were on both sides of the issue. Yeah. But now it's become every ideological issue is now being fought out in the church instead of the church being like a safe haven of people esteeming one another and building one another up in humility. You know, there's, there's a vocal minority, I hope, but an active group in the church that I find are increasingly um, saying you have to march in this March or you have to yep. vote for this politician, or you have to take this ideological stance or else you're a bad pastor in a bad church and you're a heretic and you guys are all weak Christians because you don't fight my ideological battle. That's my favorite. My favorite is when the pastor across the road or wherever says you're a coward because you don't agree yeah. with him on whatever, like whether yeah. ketchup is better than mustard. You're like, like yeah. I don't even, but anyway, that's my new favorite. So I think there's a burnout thing that's happening with pastors. Maybe that is where we're just fighting battles in the church. Yeah. The church is never, was never built to fight. It's not the church's job <laughs> to be fighting all those battles. We're to worship God and equip the saints and and live in with love with each other but pastors are getting burnt out because because they have to you know it's not just on facebook and out in the world it's in their church and it and it's extremely draining and and hurt and hurtful well, to, add I agree. to what paul's saying go ahead or to, okay it, it's like one of the interesting things is like burnout in part is caused by trying to do everything at all times without restraint technology advances that we see so much but when it came to COVID, an average pastor in an average week, had seven crises, one for every day. Yeah. And therefore, there's a sense in which it necessitates a kind of burnout, if not a, a burnout that is like a, a clinical one. But this idea, you're just exhausted all the time, tired all the time. And as Michael noted, there is a sense in which uh, there was apathy that has been experienced by many pastors. So you maybe feel a little discouraged because people are not on board as much as you would hope they would be on board in various ways. But then I also think, uh, Paul, you, you maybe kind of sparked this uh, thought is that you talked about this maybe idea of like worldly polemicism, uh, use different words. But really, there's this ideology being pushed where there's no enemies to the right of you. So anyone to your right is your, your ally, despite how wild they are. And anyone to your left is automatically an enemy. And it's a divide and conquer strategy, because if you can divide people uh, on the left and right, and your right's really tiny and tiny and tiny, you can pull people from the so-called left and ally them with you. And they come to you because they're gathering around some social or political issue that you feel that you need to elevate and can gather people around. But I'm so reminded of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, I just I was looked at him recently, but just this idea that the, that the, the, the most politically and socially impactful thing we can do is basically mm -hmm. preach the evangelical gospel and grow people in godliness. 
mean, that spills over. I'm sure people in your congregations are police officers, fire persons, uh, work in the medical industry, possibly in politics. They're Christians, but they're godly people. And I'll say I got kind of excited. So I'll say say one last thing, then be quiet. But I I am amazed when you read first and second Timothy, some of the requirements to be a leader. Mm -hmm. For example, the man of God is um, uh, is is gentle and kind to everyone. And then it says he endures uh, uh, evil with patience, which is a fruit of the spirit. Or another well, it's interesting in, in the pastoral letters yeah. how often Paul says yeah. that the, the the minister is not to be quarrelsome, and and all of a sudden it feels like the better fighter you are, the more yeah. you know notoriety you have Endurance, as a pastor. It's odd. Enduring evil mm-hmm. with patience, yeah. this language, or or teaching, exhorting, rebuking, etc., with all patience. Yeah, I mean, in a world where Twitter and Facebook and YouTube accelerate the speed of ministry, the idea of patience. Waiting five years before you criticize someone, just just to give one example, seems unheard of. Yeah, for sure. Rob, were you jumping in there? Yeah. At first, I think, Paul, it's important that you acknowledge that ketchup is better than mustard, or yeah, I think sure. you're probably going to be in that. conflict for the rest of this <laughs> session. I, I, I agree with what's been said. I think that what COVID did was created, or at least uh magnified an issue that was already there of this division and then for uh, us who are trying to shepherd these people we had friends and those we thought were spiritually mature acting in a very worldly manner and then attracting people around them and then making accusations towards us i, I know for me during that time uh, i felt exhausted because people i loved were accusing me one of following satan because of what we were believing to be god's will in the midst of what was a very confusing time so I think that is huge. I think coming out of COVID, there's also been a de-churching. I know that's probably more American than it is Canadian, but we have less volunteers. So our church is growing here, God's church here, Christ's church here, but but there's less volunteers. And so we have increased need with, with less ability to meet that need. So our children's mm-hmm. ministry, our youth ministry, they're yeah. larger than ever before. Uh, we have struggling, we're struggling getting sometimes ushers and, and uh, uh, greeters to do an effective job for the new people we have. So it's just a very interesting time. We're understaffed and there's a lot of new needs. And then the counseling needs, I think that came up earlier, yeah. the mental health issues and the broken families and the, and they tend to find churches that are loving, which is good, but that adds a, a, an immense amount of pressure on us to respond to people that sometimes we're not uh, gifted or educated to uh, impact in a very good way. We're not we're not ready to meet mental health needs, and perhaps we need to get better ready. But I think that's exhausting. If you love your people and you see your people struggling, uh, you see your people yeah. making decisions that are hurtful for them and those you love around them. You see people not coming back to church uh, after COVID that you you love deeply, and you're kind of confused as to why, and you're chasing. So it, it just creates, especially if you love your people, which I think every good pastor has you to, should. Yeah. Uh, creates a heartbreak and an exhaustion that that is emotional and and can deeply impact uh, who we are if we're not connected well to the vine. Yeah, I think I think it would be fair to say pastoral ministry has gotten harder, and it has changed in in the last three or four or five years, and so. Probably. Both of those things are going to push people out. Like as it gets harder, each it's like you know dropping a gear on your bike. Uh, as it gets harder, uh, you're going to find people just saying, "Hey, I, I tap out. I, I don't want to do this anymore." And then it's, it's changed. I mean, I, I used to think uh, in my mind that most guys went into ministry either because they, um, you know, were teachers or they were shepherds. Right? You went in because you, you love teaching the Bible, and that's just that's really your thing, and you're, you feel called to that. Or you just love shepherding a community and, and helping everyone stay together and love each other and caring for people. Okay. And that's most of what ministry was when I started. Um, all of a sudden now, though, you got to be an expert on politics. You got to be, you got to have an online presence. You got to be, uh, you know, a fighter. You've got to be involved in political protests and all this kind of stuff. And and you got to be an expert on epidemiology, at least in the last three years. And and it's it's just different. And a lot of guys who I think thought they were going into uh you know spiritual caregiving and and found that they were actually political activists or like yeah I don't I don't want to do this and uh, so I I think it's changed and I think it's got harder and that's knocked a bunch of people out yeah, yeah I yeah. think there's, there's these quiet godly people who would just go about their business volunteering a lot of those people have been weaponized over the last three years to where they are not uh, the same people they were three or four years ago 
they now feel that obligation to be very politically vocal, very politically active, and maybe serving a little less in the church because they've become a bit cynical about it. And some people talk about the idea of audience capture. And this is the idea where you're maybe like an influencer or a writer or a public speaker. But the more that your audience likes a certain thing, the more you do that. But they actually, you don't actually capture the audience. They capture you. You end up finding that you have to repeat over and over the thing that really gets people. And in our world that's full of sin and corruption, it's conflict that often yeah. drives excitement. Now, I think Christians are called to be peacemakers. So we are highly uh, countercultural in that. While we don't run away from conflict, we don't aim to create or foster it, which I actually think is not a Christian virtue. And yet audience capture in an age when, as Paul Carter said, we are almost encouraged to have an online presence to be part of a sort of a political activist strain is, I think, a temptation that few of us talk about, but is real. And it goes to Michael's point that five years ago, there's just like really great guys, pastor on the road. You loved him, best friend forever, your neighbor. And then now he's calling you like uh, all these names or your friends just online using these wild this kind of wild language that doesn't correspond to this idea that we should be gentle kind to all and, and patient in teaching it's all but i think audience capture is the concept that describes part of what we're seeing all right so if if it sounds oh, like we've got oh sorry go ahead paul graham well i was just going to say in terms of solution to this i mean we know what it is i'd be curious on some of your guys ideas of what the solution of, to this is for pastors like to me is it you identify the problem, then do you, like to me, like a simple solution, not a simple, <laughs> difficult solution is, as pastors, do we have to jealously guard those boundaries and say, that's not my job. It's not, it's not my job as a shepherd. It's not my job. As, it's not our job as the church for me to do those things and just be unapologetic and say, no, this is my job. That is not. This is what the church does. This isn't what the church does. And be more proactive in setting those boundaries so that we don't get sucked into all these different things uh, that are burning us out. Yeah, I think no, it's absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead, Michael. That fortitude, if you are always in a state of depletion. And I just think the the whole rest factor is a, is a huge one. Um, the sabbatical, The whole sabbatical thing baffles me because a lot of pastors don't get it. I, I talked to a friend recently who was, in need of a sabbatical and talk to his overseers and they were like well why don't you why don't you rest for a while first and then take a sabbatical and i was like well i'm i'm not a genius here but i'm pretty sure sabbath and sabbatical are related and so i think sabbath is supposed to be rest an extended period uh, a sabbatical is an extended sabbath right and uh i have so i have two associate pastors both of them came with quite a bit of experience to our church neither one had ever had a sabbatical and so we gave them both sabbaticals. We didn't wait till the seven-year uh, period or seven-year mark for them to have those sabbaticals. We just gave them sabbaticals. And it'd be great if churches were thinking in those terms. So you have a new pastor come to your church. He had a sabbatical four years ago. Why not give him one three years after he starts at your church instead of having making him get the seven years of seniority to take that sabbatical? So I think we could just be more generous with our pastors with, with uh, giving sabbatical rest and more disciplined with taking our weekly Sabbath as well. Yeah. And I think that there do need to be conversations. Uh, you know, every crisis gives birth to a conversation, right? And right now we we are having a, a crisis around, I would say, ecclesiology and anthropology in the church. Those are, in, to the best of, of my understanding, the, the two current crises. All right, well, then let's push those conversations. Now, it won't happen quickly, which is why I think you're seeing guys who are 62 just saying, yeah, I'm retiring now because it'll be 10 years before the church really uh, fixes its polity and fixes its understanding of congregational, you know, uh, polity. And, so, and, and I just don't want to be around for, for that whole conversation. Uh, you know, I'll get out now. So I, I think there, there do need to be conversations about what is the church? What are we doing? Uh, what's the pastor supposed to do? What's the pastor's lane versus the congregation's lane versus the elder's lane, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I suspect those conversations will, will be happening and they should be happening. I mean, a lot of churches are preaching on um, polity right now. So we're doing a series called uh, Acts 2.0 or Church 2.0. Uh, in fact, that's, I think, the theme for the next TGC National Conference, uh, something very close to that. So we're all sort of saying, okay, this crisis suggests that we're not doing something right in the area of ecclesiology. Let's let's take a look. So I, I think that that is 
uh, appropriate to do. And but it's probably going to take too much time for the pastor who's you know already in the red and just about to drop. Um, so can that's I add that's got to be part of the process. Yep, just conversations with churches and pastors, and I'm helping out a, a smaller church right now. Think through some transitions. One thing that does, that does seem to happen, especially maybe with younger guys, probably older too, is that a pastor comes somewhere and, uh, and I'm thinking of lots of illustrations. I won't say any places, but they take all the responsibility immediately and try to take over all that you do immediately in terms of planning all the liturgy, planning every little thing. And I kind of wonder if part of that's just what you were talking about, Paul Carter, in terms of like maybe doing polity teaching because. That yeah. does seem to be a recipe for doing too much burnout and also not building a team of leaders. Um, I have some examples I obviously yeah. can't say out loud, but just like um, it really leads to, I think, some pain because you feel really excited your first three to four years in a, in a church. And then years five to seven come and you're like, I literally now do all the liturgy planning. I do all the small group planning. I do all the marriage counseling. I even set up chairs, but I wanted to serve. And everyone else, you know, I freed them up not to, but then... Yeah. Now I feel like I'm running on empty and there's nothing. Some, left. some of that is on pastors though. Like I had this conversation yes, with a younger, I, a younger I pastor too critical, but I think yes. earlier this week, like, and just saying, uh, what are you doing on leadership development? Like, cause I've been at this church for 17 years, the church that I'm at now. And actually I'll be honest with you, even though our church is significantly bigger and more complex than it was when I got here, my job is a lot easier. I hope none of my people are listening to this, but uh, you, you know, my job, I would say, is like 30% easier than when I first came. And the reason is because our our lay elders are outstanding. Uh, we, we invest a lot in leadership training. Uh, our next cycle, we we do a, th a three-staged development program. We call it Barnabas program. So B1, B2, B3. B3 is elder prep. So we start with you know uh, elder level character, then we get into teaching and doctrine. And then the number third is uh, number three is is basically elder prep. And uh, so doing that, I've got 20, I think 27 guys uh, in the next, in, in the B2 phase that that starts next week. And if you just keep doing that year after year after year, pretty soon you have really well-trained elders and your job starts to gear down. Like it gets a lot easier. And, uh, and so guys who don't do that, guys who just jump in and they want to serve Jesus by setting up chairs, doing the coffee, planning the budget, blah. Okay. Well, great. In 10 years, you're going to have burnout because that's not a thing. Like, well, you, can you I ask you a follow-up question, even though I know you're still talking, could you explain maybe concretely what your elders and maybe deacons do that free you up like more concretely? Cause I think someone hearing sure. this might yeah. not fully get what you're saying. Yeah, well, from a polity perspective, we have pretty well-defined lanes. So our elders are the directors of the corporation to use CRA language. So they take care of the budget and all that. We have to collaborate. So I make a ministry plan. I pitch it to them at an elders retreat, and then they they make a budget that supports that. But really where the time saving comes in is at the level of shepherding. So, you know, we have 10 elders. Uh, we divide our congregation up onto care lists. And so our elders are the point people for uh, shepherding and care. So if somebody's marriage starts to go wonky in our church, I'm not the first call. Uh, their elders, the first call, if you lose your job and you need, um, you know, you need rent subsidy for a couple months, I'm not the first call. I was the first call when I first got here, I was the first call and the last call. Um, and now I'm not. And that just makes, that makes a massive difference right there when you have your people trained on that, but then they're also, most of them are teachers. So they lead small groups, they lead prayer groups. So again, I sat in on a prayer group that I co-lead with one of our elders this morning. Um, and I, I only lead it every other week and he leads it every other week and I lead it. And, and that's great. So again, I would have been doing all of that. I was doing, I was leading that group solo five years ago. I'm not now. And, um, and so it's, it's just, it makes a world of difference. Let's let, so let's transition though, to the, to the other side of the problem. We've been dealing basically with why are guys dropping off um, at the back end or at the front end, I guess, at the, 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 in the retirement years and the pre-retirement years. Why are we seeing that? Let's ask the question, why are there not any, are as many people coming up behind? Because in addition to the math issue, the math issue really only affects our generation. Most of, I guess we're all, except for Wyatt, Gen Xers here, but math is our problem because we're a small generation, but it shouldn't affect the millennials because there are as many millennials as there are baby boomers, right? That's, how big generations work. They tend to have, you know, a disproportionate number of babies. And then so two generations later, you get a generation as big as the boomers, which is what we got. The millennials are huge, but none of them went into ministry or very, very few of them went into ministry. 
And, and that's where the crisis is coming. If, if the same percentage of millennials had gone into ministry as baby boomers, then all we would have is a short-term crisis. We would be asking the question, how do we get through the next 10 years? Um, you know, un, un, until the millennials are ready to take, you know, take over from the Gen Xers, but that's not the problem. There's, there is nowhere near as many millennials coming up behind. So why is that? The, the number one reason that's typically given is because the economy has changed. The, the housing is astronomical in Canada, uh, and, and guys just did not see a way to provide for a family. So is, is it as simple as that, or am I missing something? I would say it's not as simple as that, although that's a huge issue for us. So we have people that commute. I've never had that before. They come in from Abbotsford, which is about an hour down the road. And we're actually in process of hiring a guy from Vancouver area. And he's talking about commuting because he rented two years ago, three years ago to change from that rental situation, even to a lower rental situation here is higher given the laws that are here in BC. It is a massive issue. I think I'd step a little bit back from that massive issue and, and say, I think we need to realize two things, the value of the local church, and then the call on the life of a pastor to give everything they have and everything they are to the building up of that local church in the strength that God provides. And I think we miss both of those. So when I'm talking to, I do some teaching for some pastoral ministry courses, those sorts of things, there is a, a real lack of understanding in terms of what it takes to be a pastor and even an understanding of the call on a pastor's life. And, and without that understanding, when you start looking at the cost that you have to pay, whether that's financial or otherwise, you look at that and you go, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather work at the docks or I'd rather whatever it is. And the, the financial pressures aren't just hitting pastors. That's another thing I think we have to realize. They're hitting everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we pay as a church. We try to match what the teachers are getting paid. That's kind of one of the guidelines we use. We have some other guidelines. And our guys aren't rich by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, struggle as as different issues come down the pipe. So I, I think it's not just for pastors. In other words, it's not about, well, I got to choose a different different way of life because of the costs. I think those costs are impacting everyone. I, I also think, just kind of as a sublet, is that uh, we have an expectation on ministry spouses, mm -hmm. especially in, in churches that are a little more in the conservative wing. And so most families now have the double income coming in uh, ministry spouses I think that's some sometimes discouraged and that also adds some financial pressure but I I think it's if we could get an understanding of the value of the church and the privilege of the call to give our lives to building her up and then in that intimate relationship with Jesus and overflow of that strength and the and the rest and stuff that we've talked about I I think we'd see a, a a number of people going man there's nothing greater back to that Spurgeon thing you know if you if you're called to be a pastor uh, don't don't step down and be a king and to you know why it language there but I, I think we need a re-understanding of the value of the local church of what jesus has called us to do and then that vision would keep us not only from being burnt out but also there'd be a, a number of people going yeah i want to do this hmm. yeah that's good yeah and i i would totally echo that uh i i think you're right i think we need to to get that call out make the clarion call make sure that millennials uh, see the value of this as a calling and are prepared for the cost, right? Like, I mean, the apostle Paul did say, um, Hey, I've, I've experienced want I've experienced lack. I've also been prosperous and, and I've discovered I can do all things through Christ. Right. So mm -hmm. meaning, I think if you're going to be in ministry for 40 years, you should probably expect some good times, some bad times, some, some fat times and some lean times. And, and, and you should be prepared to, to reach out for grace in each of those circumstances. So not going in just because it's a lean time is is probably not not the right approach. But but and yet, so yes, but but the church also has a responsibility to, to help those who feel the call and want to come in. Yes. I, I was talking to a developer this morning who told me that a 1,000 square foot condominium in Hamilton right now is going for a million dollars. You just you hear that and you go, uh, how how then is a church in Hamilton hiring a youth pastor? I don't I don't even how's that. And, and why you're in Hamilton. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's two pieces. I think Rob is exactly correct that if you're called, you'll go and there are people, but there are a couple complicating factors. I think add context to what he said. So one is our culture as a, as a whole is a culture just so interested in silly things. So this high calling of being a Christian, pursuing Christ, thinking carefully about the Bible, spiritually shepherding someone 
I mean, it's fun to make uh, TikTok videos. You know, we're, we're kind of a culturally silly. Yeah. Sometimes our churches have the same expectation for those who are congregants. But young guys in particular, the ones who would grow to leadership, they love to do hard things. And I, I don't know that we always have those hard things laid out and shown to be achievable, wonderful, and beneficial in concrete ways in local congregations uh, because of the, the, the kind of cultural silliness that we have in general. But added to that problem, the people that rise up to be future leaders who are like 22, 23, 24, 25, well, they eventually want to get married. And what you find is they have rent control at 20 in Hamilton or Burlington. So they pay 1500 a month. Their girlfriend pays the same in a different city. They want to get married, but they realize now our rent together after marriage is 4500 a month. I can't afford to live in Burlington or uh, Surrey anymore. I got to go to Abbotsford or Guelph or wherever. And so they have to move away from the church in which they were invested and could have been a potential leader. Mm -hmm. That trend will not change at least for the, <laughs> I don't even know when it will change. If you want in Hamilton, the average one bedroom is 1900. If you're under rent control from five or six years ago with your bros, and then you get married with your wife and you want a place that can be a place maybe with two bedrooms or three so you can have kids, you basically can't afford to live here. And if you want to make the bigger sacrifice to say, when we have kids, at least for a short time, we want to manage it so that one of our parents can be there to give them specific care. So you might say a one or 1.5 uh, full-time worker home. So half-time worker mom or whatever. Yeah. Well, then you say, if this sacrifice is so important, given our biblical convictions, it's even more attractive to move to the outer burbs. And I don't know that that's bad or I'm just trying to think out loud. I was talking with a Vancouver uh, pastor yesterday and it's like uh he's renting a house uh well people are renting houses in vancouver for like four thousand dollars and what they're renting is a main floor of a multi-structural home so the moment you get a third kid in a two-bedroom house like that yeah and it's a different so it's a girl and two boys which which are harder to be in in, in just one bedroom it really creates a problem because you want these young families to be biblical families and have strong fathers and mothers to lead. And yet there's just structurally a huge problem given the way that Canadian cities are developed that will make it, I think, increasingly difficult to build um, the city church. So, well, let's talk about that because I, I think you're right. And I think you've hit on something important. Some of these problems are, are structural and they're not the sort of structural things that we can fix. I, I had this conversation with a young guy a couple of weeks ago. I said, listen, brother, young guy wanting to come into ministry, no idea how he could do it on the sorts of entry level salaries that are being offered. I, I said, listen, I don't know what to tell you. It, it Sometimes there are things that have to change out in the world. Like the church is in the world and Canada has unfortunately not thought through uh, what is the impact going to be of bringing in 500,000 adult immigrants a year uh, when we don't build houses for them. Like that, it, we haven't, we didn't factor that in, or it seems like nobody factored that in. And so now all of a sudden we have these skyrocketing housing prices and even building houses is expensive uh, because the, the the cost of materials is high uh, and finding contractors is difficult because it's not just pastoral ministry uh, that is experiencing the demographic realities. It's the construction industry. Uh, I, I talked to lots of guys in the construction industry and they say all the guys who own these companies, the drywall companies, the they're all retiring because they're baby boomers too. And guess what? There's no Gen Xers. Uh, there's not enough Gen Xers to take over the plumbing business. And so the plumbing business is being handed to a 30-year-old. And so now the speed for doing that job is 50% of what it was three years ago. So there's just all these issues. They're all across society. These are structural issues. So the point is, can the church solve these things? I don't know. I mean, short of paying a youth pastor 250 grand a year, I don't know how we solve this problem. And I know we can't do that. So... You know, I'm saying to this young guy, I don't know, maybe you need to go and work in private industry and, and yeah, be an elder for at your church for a couple of years, a decade until, you know, the government figures out the housing crisis and until the church is able to restructure. I'm not sure I can solve this for you by next year. No. And I think it's even going to get worse because I think, I think we've seen people giving less because they're under pressure. 
uh, reason. I mean, I, again, each church is different. I know I, I just had one of our elders who does a lot of stats work said uh, overall giving is down. Uh, larger churches giving is up. So I understand that there's probably some different experiences here. But I, I think as we become more and more different than the world around us, the uh, economics will also hit us. So I think housing allowances, those sorts of things will probably diminish in the next little while. Uh, tax receipts, I don't know. We, we have some churches in BC now under pressure from uh, local municipalities. So I, I think it's it's even worse than you're saying, because I think we'll have less resources and greater needs. So I, I think we have to restructure, think about ministry in a different way. Uh, I think we're going to have to give some serious thought to this. And so what are some of those ideas? Because, so, you know, as Paul Graham was saying, we don't want to just identify problems, although that's that's the first step. That's helpful. What are some ways the church could restructure to navigate the changes that are coming? Because I, I think you're right. I've been hearing people talk about the tip of the iceberg. I feel like the iceberg is is now out and it's coming. Uh, so I, a great time to talk about structural changes. What can we do? One really small one I'll just say real quick is I think the church, especially over the last 50 to 70 years, has always been swimming upstream against the professionalization of the ministry. So you're always fighting against the temptation to just hire staff to get ministry done. And so part of the structural change in the church might be swimming harder upstream against that. And the body who may not have the money to give in the plate, have the time or the ministry gifts to be able to serve as volunteers in positions where we would normally hire people. So that a church budget doesn't have to have three or four staff on budget. It might only have to have one or two better paid people. I'd rather have one or two staff that are paid appropriately and can serve joyfully than have three poorly paid or four poorly paid staff that are grumpy about it and can't get by. And yep. if the church congregation can lean into serving, especially in the areas where they can serve without professional skills or without great burden. But I mean, a lot of churches now, and I'm not just talking about the big churches, I mean, they've got, they've got part-time children's ministry directors, they're hiring worship leaders, they're hiring you know, chaplains to go visit people in the hospital. These are all things that the body of Christ should be doing anyway without being paid to do it. So. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think we're going to see a return of of volunteerism, al although the challenge there is what you guys were just talking about. We, While this whole professionalization of ministry thing has been happening, uh, we've also transitioned into a two-income world. Yes. And uh, so fit, like when I was a kid, the best volunteers in the church were always moms, women, uh, because the dads were out, you know, working their 50 hours to pay the mortgage and buy the groceries and the moms were at home. And so once the kids were in school, the moms were at the church and they did everything. And, and so, yeah, you know, when I was a little kid, you could run a church on one pastor and 17 ladies. Very That's not the world anymore. Yeah. What's Those ladies don't exist. Is this problem is not true for churches. It's true for, all the traditional institutions that mediated between the individual and the government, whether that's sororities, fraternities, guilds, gathering groups, it's, they're all kind of falling away. And this is, I think, a huge societal problem because now everyone has to be professionalized to, to uh, get their needs met, whether that's mental health or food or uh, pregnancy resource or whatever it is. In terms of solution, I think there's like really interesting ones. One is read the history of the church. Um, for the most part, churches have run through a patronage model. And I can tell you just from knowing people, there is no shortage of Christian millionaires in Canada. In fact, we have a lot of money in a very few places, um, but there's no vision for Christian patronage. Yeah, that's that a good point. Like, we need to stop telling millionaires that they, that they should be giving 10%. It's like, mm, no, no. <laughs> uh, right? The, the guy making minimum wage should be given 10%. You, you should be giving significantly more than that. Yeah. Or even just approaching, like, like I just, I, yeah. I just know there are right. I can just, you could reach out to hundreds of millions of dollars in the hands of Christians right now, but there's no vision and there's no responsibility or idea that like what you're doing as a patron is how Paul did it. It's how like yeah. we all do. It. It's like the whole history of the church has run this way. Hmm. A voluntary model of giving has been a huge part of it as well. Don't get me wrong. But in times of crunch like we're in or in communities where there was deep missionary work, for example, in Northern Europe in the medieval ages and early medieval ages, it was patronage. It's the only way it could work. 
But demographically Um, speaking, even, I was just queuing in on that when you're talking about the millennials coming up and not having the money or not having the wages there. And it's the boomers and the Gen Xers who are complaining about this. And the greatest accumulation of wealth in history is in boomers and Gen X. So if the millennials aren't getting paid, it's because the boomers aren't paying them. Yeah, that's a select group of boomers because actually a lot of boomers have less than five thousand dollars in retirement savings. The majority have less than I think five thousand, which is a terrifying prospect. But you're right that the select group of baby boomers have a an immense amount of wealth. And actually, I'm not even exaggerating; it's it's there and it's easy. This problem is so easy to take care of if patrons were patrons. But there's a second issue that I want to add: um, is um, most churches in Canada are like under eighty people. And yet they're run as if they have 150 people, yeah. meaning every Sunday there was a full nursery team. Every Sunday there was a full ministry team. Every Sunday there's a full team there's that a full requires band. that many people. Eight people on stage. Yeah. and But like you don't have your your small church slash church plant. So you're going to burn out all of your volunteers and they're going to say, I won't volunteer anymore. If you make them run as if they're a 150 person church or as yeah. if your church is going to be 150 people in five years, like uh, after World War Two realistically that probably won't happen the third category and I'll, I'll be quiet after this is um there are church build in my city there are church buildings aplenty and church congregations aplenty that are all 10 20 30 40 people <laughs> yeah. like you, you'd think you could put some of those people together you think so i think we have to i so so why i don't disagree with you i i think again if we value the church uh everyone does as we should and i'm talking now the local church I think we'll see a lot more uh, giving of time and talents. And, and I, the D church movement is real. I think at least where we are in BC, uh, less people attending, but less people serving. And, and again, we are growing. So now I'm talking about Cloverdale Baptist, but we're finding our people are two out of four, like the, the stats that I didn't think applied to me that are coming out of the States. Yeah. Well, maybe they're not tightly applied to me, but they're there. And and we have less people willing to give of their time. What does that mean? Two Sundays out of four. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, two Sundays out of four. So so they're committed, where it used to be three out of four, four out of four. Now it's two out of yeah. four. So the amount of people that are actually attending churches now, I'll talk, but our church seems to be this way, significantly more than your Sunday morning attendance. And they would call it their church. They're giving like it's their church, but they're not serving. And I and I think the the answer to our problem is to re well just reunderstand what church is, which is in terms of people giving and serving. And and I think larger churches is more difficult. I think in a smaller church this is easier. But I think we need every person if we use Ephesians four language, using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. And unless we get that, I think we're going to be in trouble. And I'm not sure paid staff is the long-term solution given where I think our country is going. But I do think a, a spirit-filled dynamic relationship with Jesus that overflows with a deep love for his church and serves his church. And that becomes contagious. I think that is the answer. I'm just not sure how to get there other than the things we've been trying to do, which is prayer, uh, word, discipleship, you know, the things, things we're trying, but it doesn't seem like we're moving in that direction, but I do think that's the solution. Really like that. You keep circling back to that, Rob, that uh, we have to give the younger people in our churches, this vision of pastoring church ministry as a as a dignified and, and an honorable thing to do uh, in our culture now, you know, that used to be, everyone used to assume that, right? That would be one of the possible paths that you would take. You might become a minister and it was generally respected and, and agreed upon that that was a respectable professional. That doesn't really exist anymore, but I would, I would say with the younger people in my church, if you live before them quite transparently about both the, the pros and the cons, the difficult things and the joyful things in ministry, they'll get a sense of it. And of course, it's too simplistic to say the finances will take care of themselves. But I mean, I've seen some pretty miraculous things happen when someone genuinely feels there's a call from God. The financial uh, issues seem to work themselves out in ways that you can't really explain. I of agree course, and don't think it's too simplistic. Other structures, but that's a real thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and I think to to, you know, to go back to John. John Piper's don't waste your life and uh, don't play around with seashells. I, I think in the same way that we give that courageous clarion call to, to the young people about taking this on and taking that risk. I think you give it to the retirees because uh, you know, we do have an awful lot of people who are retiring still between 60 to 65 with a really healthy pension and their homes are paid off. And uh, rather than collecting your seashells and playing golf five times a week, 
I, I think it would be great to create, in essence, un, unpaid uh, ministry positions for those people. And we've got we've got a couple of those folks in our church who serve really uh, in, in a really dedicated, intentional fashion. That's great. I think, in essence, the retirees need to replace the stay-at-home moms. Uh, the stay-at-home moms, when I was a kid, they were the workforce of the church. Okay, well, we don't have stay-at-home moms any, anymore because of the change in the economy. We do have, though, really healthy 62-year-olds who are going to live to be 88 and could probably give the Lord the next 10 or 12 years of their life, and it would be a, a no loss, a net-net, right? So I, I think we've got to make that call at the backside, too. Yeah. Uh, quick question, just, just before we go. I want to focus on the pastors that are in ministry. Uh, we we talked we started by talking about burnouts and and resignation. We've talked about how hard it is to break in. We've talked about structural changes, et cetera. But for guys that are in and who are feeling these stresses, um, who are feeling maybe that the ministry has shifted out from underneath them. Maybe they went into ministry because they wanted to, you know, teach teach the Bible and love some folks, and uh, and it's just a different world. What would you say to them? What What is something that you could say that might keep somebody in ministry for another two or three years? Just we'll go around the horn. Give us your best thought. What could What could keep somebody today from writing that letter of resignation? Michael, we'll start with you because you you probably thought the most about this. Yeah, I'd say a combination of rest and reconnecting with the ancient practices. Mm -hmm. Really, I I think there's a lot that could be gained from that. A lot of guys that are just limping along, if they could have an opportunity to have a, a restful reset and commit to those practices that we should be the models of. I think that would, that would uh, gain a lot. Good. That's great. Paul Graham. Uh, I would say find, uh, even if you only find two or three allies on your elders board or influences in your church, find two or three allies who buy into a healthy vision of healthy church culture and start at the top and start building out healthy church culture. Um, not to lay blame on pastors who are probably suffering, but we are the ones who lead our church into culture. So if we're serving in an unhealthy church, I'd have to ask what we've been doing for the last 10 years that we're serving in an unhealthy church. We've got to pick our allies and start building healthy culture in our church from the top down and from the pulpit out. That's good. Graham, Wyatt? <laughs> yeah, so I've, I, my perspective is more friends with pastors and also lay leaders and churches and, and, and things like that. So I, I would simply, there's two things that come to mind easily. One is from just when I've seen and conversations is give away all the things that you think you need to do as a pastor that are like on your plate and mm. you'll find that you still have lots of work. <laughs> it might just be more prayer or sermon prep, but you're, yeah. it's going to be there. It's not going to go away. You think you're going to lose your, your value, but if you give it away, people actually flourish because they love to serve in the church. And if you don't give them the responsibility to do so, they won't and you'll get burnt out. Then secondly, it's kind of what Michael said. It's like, for me personally, I, just reading old dead people and thinking about how church used to be, it's, it's very refreshing because I think sometimes church today feels like if you're a younger person outside, it's all social media, it's all looking good, it's all advancing, it's all doing a thousand things a minute, being highly efficient, getting your quotas, getting your P&Ls higher than your, you know, your P, higher than your L's. And like kind of almost in a secular mindset, but just reading and enjoying how people used to do ministry and, and invest in people and be reminded of how God has worked through uh, Christians in church history. And you actually find that corresponds to what the New Testament lays out as well. Um, I think sometimes we get so locked into how the way things are today that we forget yeah. that's not how they always ought to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I can interject there, um, this whole idea of the pastor as the chief administrator is killing a lot of pastors too. Um, another friend that recently resigned and I was just having a chat with him and he's like, you know what, I can, I'm good at preaching and teaching and leading people, but I'm not sure I'm a pastor. And I was like, I think you've got, I think you've got what you need there, but there's a lot of pressure on pastors to be the CEO or the chief administrator. And when they fail at that, they feel that they're not qualified to pastor. Yeah. Rob? I would reiterate probably a lot of what's been said. I think the most important thing is our relationship with God and that we keep that strong and dynamic. And, and then as an overflow of that, we have a deep value for his people, his bride, the local church. And then I think understanding, I think it's been said, but a healthy vision 
I my understanding is from studies that vision is one of the best ways to beat burnout. I, I think that's true. So mm. I think once you have that relationship with God, uh, the value of the local church, then a vision of what that means and a, a focus of going forward with hope in the power of the spirit. And then I, I love what was said also about relationships. I think it's important that you have around yourself people that hold you accountable, people mm. that pour into you, people that take you aside and say, hey, you need to. Uh, I, I've always found if you have those people in your life that uh, are honest with you, who will encourage you, but also bring uh, conviction where that is needed. I think that's a huge part of, of being able to go forward. I found those, I, I know for some people, they find them outside of the church. I've always found those inside of the church. I, uh, some of my board members, um, just people that that truly love me and, and are willing to speak with courage to me and humility to me about stuff I need. So I, I think those things, I think really an overflow of what everyone else has said, but I think those are key. That's good. Yeah, I was going to say spiritual disciplines uh, and plurality is my sort of number one and two, but those have also yeah. been been said. So I think the one thing I'll add is just remember that you're an under shepherd yes. and, and not the chief shepherd, right? Uh, one of the most important things for a young pastor to remember, any pastor to remember is you're not Jesus. Um, it's not your job to fix the world by Friday at 5 p.m. Uh, I've never had a week where I, you know, spiked my Bible on the carpet and moonwalked out of my office, you know, having ushered in the kingdom of God. Uh, that will never happen. Ministry is the fine art of dipping the ocean dry with a teacup. You're never done. So go home, uh, you know, work hard, be faithful, uh, execute your ministry for sure, and then go home and understand there'll be hurting people that you haven't helped. There'll be lost people that you haven't reached. There'll be problems you haven't solved. And all of that will still be true. The poor you will always have with you until Jesus comes. Um, so you're, you're not the show, you're not the solution. You're just a guy, um, and, and be, be faithful and go home. Uh, is, I think it's a very important thing to remember. All right. Well, thanks for that. Good discussion. Hopefully that's helpful. Uh, thanks for joining me and, uh, we'll be back to talk about more matters that are more issues that matter to the Canadian church. Uh, we're hoping to be back next month. Uh, our November episode is going to be on counseling. Obviously, that's a bit of an overlap to what we're talking about today. Uh, we've been talking mostly about sort of you know mental health for pastors and those sorts of issues. But uh, the other side of that is that our our sheep are, are hurting as well, and counseling has become a front burner issue in almost every church that I'm familiar with. So we're going to get back. We're going to talk about that. What is the role of the pastor? Is the pastor a triage nurse or a surgeon? How how should we understand these things? Uh, what is the range for referral? Are there are there uh, counselors, types of counseling that you shouldn't refer to, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And how do you manage all that? Like, are these people accountable to your board of elders? What do you do when you outsource so much of your pastoral care to these specialists? How do you provide oversight to that as a pastor and as a board of elders, depending on your polity? That's going to be a good conversation. Should be fun. And uh, look forward to seeing several of you back for that and a few others uh, that we'll be bringing in. And as well to all those who are listening with us. Until then, take care and God bless. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 